The sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter, verses 1 through 44. This can be found in the bulletin or in the Pew Bible on pages 829 through 830. Matthew 24, 1 through 44. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
for his ministry of teaching, his ministry of opening and preparing our hearts, his ministry of applying the word to our hearts, his ministry of glorifying the Lord Jesus by taking of what belongs to him and disclosing and proclaiming it to us. Thank you that we are not left here to do uh, textual archaeology. You're not leaving us to ourselves to try to excavate meaning out of the text. You promise that just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater in the very same way your word that goes out from your mouth will always accomplish what you purpose and will always succeed in the thing for which you send it. It's your agenda and your promise of effectiveness and fruitfulness now that we stand on by faith. We thank you for pledging yourself so lavishly to us through your word. And we pray that not only would you release sanctifying Christ-conforming power through this word, but saving power as well this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's no way around it. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, there's a lot about Matthew 24 that is really hard. And it has generated a lot of debate among interpreters. And so before a passage like this, uh, I am very grateful Uh, for the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. What is that, you ask? Well, pull a hymnal out, if you would, uh, in front of you. A red hymnal. They're easy to find because they're red. And if you turn to page 849, I'll I'll explain what I'm talking about. We're going to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith here for a minute. So on page 849, I want to look at paragraph 7, Roman numeral 7, Uh, in chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith opens with a chapter on the Holy Scriptures. And in paragraph 7, the confession summarizes uh, what what we know as the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Now now look at the wisdom of this. Paragraph 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Anybody reading Daniel right now? I am. I'm, I was in Daniel 11 this morning, and I, I said, well, Lord, I trust you. I don't trust me. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear, and not everything even that's clear in the Bible is equally clear to everyone who reads the Bible. Yet, those are the, the colon is very important, yet... Those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. God, in giving us his word, doesn't mean to confuse us or bewilder us. Yes, there are going to be things in his word that are hard to understand. Wouldn't you expect that if he's God? Wouldn't you expect that if what he says uh, the effects of sin are upon our minds and hearts really are the effects of sin upon our minds and hearts? Wouldn't you expect that our understanding would be uh, affected? When I was uh, in seminary, I I was very privileged to have uh, Roger Nicole as one of my professors. And uh, he was a, a Swiss... Uh, brother, and he spoke with a very thick Swiss-French accent that I want to be able to imitate for you, but I cannot, because you'll never hear anything else that I say this morning. When he was explaining, I had a class with him on the confession, and I wrote this quote down in my copy of the confession when he said it to us. He was explaining that paragraph, and he said, brothers, you have to read your Bible the way you eat fish. Don't spend your time on the bones or you won't be nourished. Spend your time on the flesh. Now, there's a lot of wisdom 
in that. And, you know, the, really the translation is spend your time on those things in the words of that paragraph from the confession that are necessary to be, to, to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. So what I want to do this morning with you from this uh, large block of text is I want to be thinking, uh, well, I want to focus our energies on the flesh and not the bones of Matthew 24 uh, and, and our Lord's teaching on his second coming. And I want to I focus in on three questions with you this morning about Jesus' second coming. What, what is the what of Jesus' second coming? What is the when of Jesus' second coming? And what is the why of Jesus' second coming? The what, the when, and the why. So let's think first about the what of Jesus' second coming. What is it? Well, Jesus Christ will return to the earth, as he says here in verse 30, with power and great glory. And he will do so to take full possession of all that is rightfully his and of all who are rightfully his. And he will do so bodily, not spiritually. He will do so publicly, not secretly. He will do so unmistakably and unambiguously. Do you see how he describes it in verse 27? This is not going to be a secret. This is not going to be in just one part of the earth. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone will know, and they will all know at the same time. The second coming will be the open and eternal vindication of Jesus Christ and his Father. The second coming will be the day when Jesus will hear every tongue confess, every single tongue, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, He will hear those tongues confess that he is Lord. He will see with his eyes every knee bowing before him. That's what the second coming is going to be. The second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be the end of the present age, my friends. History is not just going to continue on indefinitely in the future. This is one of the key elements of the Christian biblical worldview. History is not just this endless this endless line that's going to go out, you know, the Big Bang just keeps banging, keeps expanding, and then eventually the universe is going to get so separated, everything's going to be so vastly distant from one another that again, that eventually it's going to come back like a slinky. That's not what the Bible teaches when Jesus Christ returns, the present age will be, will, will be at its end. The second coming is the God-designed goal toward which all of history is moving, toward which every individual life is moving, every force in history, every facet of history, every face in history, whether you realize it or not, my friends, by God's design is aimed toward that second coming. This is what Scripture teaches. And Jesus, when he returns, will personally bring all of history and all of creation to their appointed and God-designed consummation. The second coming is going to be the end of God's mercy. The second coming will be the end of the church's mission to the nations. The second coming will be the end of all opportunity for unbelievers. And therefore, it will also be the beginning of eternal mourning for all those who have rejected the gospel of Christ. Do you see how Jesus describes it in verse 30? Right, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will people from every tribe on the earth mourn? Because the age of opportunity and God's mercy will be over. The second coming is going to be Judgment Day. It's the inescapable destiny of every single human being who has ever lived or will ever live. 
on that day, Jesus Christ, when he comes to take full possession, full and rightful possession of all that is rightfully his and of all who are rightfully his, one of his privileges and prerogatives will be that he will sit as the judge of the living and the dead, the Lord of glory. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says when he's preaching in Athens, he says, God has overlooked the sin of men, but now he is calling men everywhere to repentance because he has appointed a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness through a man and he has furnished proof to the world that that is what he is going to do and that Jesus Christ is that man by raising him from the dead. And every human being who has ever lived or will ever live will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive justice. What he, what he, as Paul says, that, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And when the Apostle John in Revelation 20 sees the scene of the great white judgment throne and, and he sees the sea giving up its dead and he sees the great and the small It's not just the the people we think of as villains in history. Every single person, great and small, is going to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and the books are going to be opened. That's what the second coming means. And if your name is not in that book of life, your eternal mourning and punishment will begin. For the church, the second coming will be the end of all, it will be the end of all tribulation and all suffering. It will be the end for the church of all persecution and all martyrdom, the end of all lawlessness and lovelessness on the earth, the end of all nakedness and distress and peril and famine and sword. The second coming will be the end. I was thinking a lot about this this week. The second coming will be the end of sanctification one degree to another. Sanctification is an amazing and wondrous gift of God purchased by Jesus Christ at the cross. But I think it moves too slowly. I mostly think about your sanctification, not mine. No, I'm just kidding. No, just think about that, my friends. The second coming will mean the end of sanctification degree by by glorious degree, and it will be the fullness of our glorification. Remember what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. Already, I mean, that's just amazing. We are God's children. If you're in Christ, you are God's child. How amazing is that? We are God's children now, but John goes on because he says as amazing as that is, think even more broadly. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something greater than being children of God? Yes. It's that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. As he is. The second coming, that means, oh, Colossians 3, 4, right? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that means that the second coming is going to be our homecoming, my friends. It's going to be our healing. 
with the home that we have sought for all our lives, that we have longed for, that has been promised to us in the gospel, the the place we were always made to be, the place that Jesus has prepared for us in the presence of God, we are finally going to get there because Jesus is going to bring it down personally. And in that place, we will enjoy the healing that we have always longed for. Like he says earlier in Matthew 13, Verse 43, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. That's what the second coming is going to mean for those of us who are in Christ. The second coming is going to be the end of all the birth pains that Jesus talks about in verse 8. The birth pains will be over, but no, and it's going to be the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, think about that image of birth pains. Yes, they are painful, but notice they're birth pains. They're not death wheezes. So there is something that through all the tribulation and all the suffering that God is not, has not only prepared and planned, but he will certainly bring to fruition, which is the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, and we will be with him forever. The groaning and the futility will be over. Nature, creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. You know, in 2010, I I, I was with Jeremy Robbins and Robert Cron, and we climbed Half Dome in Yosemite. And when I got to the top of Half Dome, I understood more powerfully than I ever had in the rest of my life two things. Number one, I totally get why people are tempted to worship nature. Totally get that. And secondly, Romans 8, the magnitude of what Paul is promising in Romans 8 about that day when the creation itself will be set free to enter the glory of the freedom of the children of God. I thought, if if Half Dome is this glorious now in futility, what will it be like on that day? And that's what the second coming will be. The second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be the full and final answer to the Lord's prayer. God's kingdom will have come so that his will will be done at last fully and eternally on earth as it is in heaven because earth and heaven will be made one by the second coming of Jesus Christ. There will be no more temptation And we will have been fully and eternally delivered from all evil. And that, my beloved friends, is just the beginning of the faintest sketch of the what of Jesus' second coming. So let's go to the when. And I know you don't have outlines, so there's two headings, two subpoints under this heading of when. Simplicity and complexity. So let's deal with the simplicity first because Jesus, what Jesus teaches us about the timing of his second coming here in Matthew 24 is that it is both a matter of simplicity and complexity. And both, he means to train our expectations for life in this period between his first and second coming by both of those aspects of his second coming. So simplicity, listen, it couldn't be any clearer than verse 36. Uh, there, the, 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 the simplest thing, and it's just so ironic to me, that the simplest thing about Jesus' second coming is the thing that just seems to get violated over and over and over again. No one knows. No one is ever going to know before it happens apart from the Father. Look at verse 36, my friends. But concerning that day and hour, the day and hour, the specific moment, right? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor, okay, so that we might expect, nor the Son, but the Father only. That, friends, you know what Jesus is telling us right there? The exact time of his second coming is a question that we need to not pry into. The day and the hour of his second coming is we see even his posture as the son. This isn't a question of his inability or his inequality with the father. This is a statement of his humility and submission to his father. 
And if the son is content to leave knowledge of the day and hour of his own return into the hands of the father, then what that says about us when we pry impatiently is that we are proud. Anyone besides the father who tells you that they know the day and hour of Jesus' return is certainly proud and just as certainly either lying or deceived. Only options, period. Period. I don't care who it is. But Jesus doesn't just leave us with that. He gives us an important qualification. Even if we can't and won't know the exact day and hour of his return, and this is very important what he does in the passage, friends, even if we can't and won't know the exact day and hour, we can know and we can recognize that he is near, that he is at the very gates as he says in verse 33. This is the point he's making with his fig tree illustration in verses 32 through, th- through 34. And if you don't see this illustration for what it is and the point that he's trying to make, then everything that you conclude about verse 29 and about verse 34, which are these controversial places in Matthew 24, if you don't see how all those questions are controlled by this illustration, then you're off the rails. So just look at this illustration. It's so simple, and its implications are very far-reaching. So just look at verse 32 with me. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. So again, this would be something that they would be very familiar with, very basic. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Okay, so what's he saying? Well, he's describing an organic process, right, that has steps and it's progressive. And you know, he says, that when the fig tree, uh, when its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. You can read the data. You know that summer is near, which is very different from saying that summer is here. The nearness of summer is not the same thing as the hereness of summer. You notice he does not describe any fruit on that branch. Did you see that? In that illustration, summer is not here. Summer has not arrived. Summer is approaching. Oh, that's important. What he's describing is a process or a sequence of events in a process that when they occur, they reliably indicate to us and entitle us to conclude that summer is near. Not that summer is here, but that it's near. And those aren't the same thing. Approach, even close approach, is not the same thing as arrival. Being at the gates of a city is not the same thing as being in the city center. And you'll notice that he then applies, he applies, I kind of bled over into verse 33, but you'll notice he's got that illustration of the fig tree, that that what's happening with the fig tree tells us that summer is near, and then he applies it pastorally to the issue of his return. So also, you see this direct analogy, he wants our understanding of what he's going to say next to be controlled by that illustration. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, the temptation, because of where verses 29 through 31 fall, the temptation is to see that phrase, all these things, and say, oh, that means when we see him That's referring to his second coming. But that can't be so. Because then the conclusion would be, when you see all these things, sorry, I lost my place. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. But no, 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 no. If all these things mean his second coming, as has been described in verses 29 through 31, then he would say, then you know that I'm here. I'm inside the gates. I'm not at them. 
You see, so what he's talking about, friends, this is very important. What he's talking about then is what's going to be true for the generation that he's addressing. Many people over the years have looked at Jesus' promise in verse 34 and said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And they have concluded wrongly that Jesus believed that he was going to return, mistakenly, right? That he's, he's mistakenly believing at the time that he's going to return before the end of the generation that he's addressing. But that's not what he's promising at all. What he's promising is that all these things, the same phrase that you see in verse 33 and verse 34, that is controlled, the meaning of that is controlled by his illustration, verse 32, of the the branch and then the leaves and the, the lesson that summer is near, that all these things refer to the things that are preliminary events for his return. So what's going to be true for the generation that he's addressing is that all these preliminary events, all the conditions that have to be in place for his return are fulfilled during their lifetime. Now that's amazing. I think that's the best way to read the sequence of the verses. And so that means something very simple, my friends. That means that at the latest, from the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD forward, all the way until his second coming, and that would include us now in our age, that from the destruction of the temple forward, which is what he's describing, verses 15, roughly through 25, is that that Roman uh, siege of Jerusalem, that's why he mentions Judea in verse 17, From that time forward all until the time of the second coming, the rest of history at that time is supposed to be lived by his church with the awareness that he, the Lord of glory, is already at the very gates of the world. Oh, that's important. Friend, are you living like the Lord of glory and the judge of the living and the dead is on your front doorstep? You might be a non-Christian. So grateful that you're here today. Jesus is wanting you in his mercy to feel the urgency of his nearness. He is literally on the doorstep of the world because there is nothing, there is, he is not constrained by anything except the mercy of God the Father. It is only the mercy of God the Father and God the Father's saving purpose that is holding back the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not the merit of man, it's the mercy of God. And that brings us, my friends, to the complexity. I know you thought that was the complexity. And it kind of was. But the the main thing I wanted you to see there is, is that the way we're supposed to live now The the point of all that close examination of verses 32 through 34 is this. Jesus is already at the very gates. He's already that near. And that changes, that introduces profound complexity into our experience. Because what it means is that the age that we're living in, friends, is an age in which there is this overlap of great triumph and great tribulation, which is exactly what Jesus describes in the rest of the chapter. Now, before we look at, at, at those two things, great, great tribulation and great triumph, before we look at those things, I want to pull back and I want to, I want to make sure that, that I emphasize something that is utterly critical that we not lose sight of. If we're going to understand the win of Jesus' second coming. We have to understand the why of his first coming. You cannot understand the when, the timing of Jesus' second coming, uh, apart from what Scripture teaches us about the why of his first coming. Let me show you what I mean. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3, verse 17. It's a very familiar, well, at least the verse before is going to be very familiar to you. It's on page 888. Uh, in your pew Bible. I think it's a mistake we often make that we start thinking about the second coming 
and we're so interested in reading the newspapers and listening to people who tell us that they have figured out, and they ha- clearly haven't figured out how to read verse 36. Okay, if you haven't figured out how to read verse 36, you, have, you don't have the qualifications to tell me you figured out when the second coming's happening. Okay, so I'm clicking you to a different channel. Not buying those books. But we often make the mistake of, of separating Jesus' second coming, the timing of his second coming, from the purpose of his first. But look at verse 17 in chapter 3. It's absolutely staggering. Right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. See, God, if, if God's only agenda was to condemn the world for its sin, he didn't have to send Jesus. The world was already condemned. Do you see that? Therefore, if God sends Jesus into the world, that means that his purpose toward the world is a saving purpose. Verse 17 reveals that the first coming of Jesus was the beautiful fruit of this eternally lovely root in the heart of the Father that when He is faced with the world that has turned its back on Him, decides to give the world His best from His very heart, His Son. And friends, God's saving purpose, His will to save sinners, His resolve to ransom them, His passion to reconcile the nations to Himself by the blood of His Son, that was not, all those things were not exhausted when Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. Those are still live passions and resolves of God's heart, and they will be for every second until the second coming happens. And aren't you grateful? You have unbelieving friends and family members just like I do. You and I are Christians only because the saving purposes and passions of God, His resolve to reconcile the nations to Himself through Jesus Christ, the only reason we are Christians today, any of us, and enjoy any fellowship with God is because those purposes of God's heart were not exhausted when Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, and they continue today. And aren't you glad? So that means, friends, that when we're thinking about this this overlap in which there's great triumph and great tribulation, when we suffer, when there's persecution, when, when Christians are betrayed, uh, when, when things happen where we're on the wrong side of state power or our brothers and sisters are kicked out of their homes and they're martyred and they're ignored, when the world cares more about Ebola than the martyrdom of Christians in Iraq and Syria. Friends, unless you understand that what is underneath all of this is the saving purpose of God not yet fulfilled. God is holding back final judgment. He is holding back His wrath and He is showering this world with His patience and forbearance and mercy because the full number of the elect has not yet been gathered. Jesus has not yet received the full company of people whom the Father has given to him and whom he purchased. He still has sheep to call. And we have to understand our suffering and our difficulty and our tribulation in this age in light of those saving purposes. We always, in our suffering, want to make it about us. And I want to lift our eyes through this text to to see the cost that the people of Christ must be willing to pay so that the saving purpose of God can continue and be expressed and seen and received and fulfilled in our world. Friends, make no mistake about it. Uh, If you go back to Matthew 24 with me, make no mistake about it. What Jesus shows us here is that we are living 
in an age of great triumph. The age all the way up until his second coming is an age of great triumph. Make no mistake about that. Yes, there will be many false prophets and many false Christs who arise in this age. Right? Verse 24 tells us that. We saw that two weeks ago. But friends, none of those false prophets and their false teaching and none of those false Christs can reverse or undo or conquer the true Christ. Yes, many will be led astray and many will fall away, but not all. Not all. Because Jesus promises us there will be others who will endure to the end, who will be saved. And he promises us that in the midst of this field of so much tribulation and so much suffering, look at verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The gospel is going to advance. It's not going to, they're not going to be able to keep it in Judea. Because it's the power of God. It's not going to be easy for the gospel to advance. It's not going to be easy for it to be proclaimed to the nation. Some of you young people here today might be called by Jesus Christ to become linguists who work for Wycliffe and who labor translating the New Testament into some obscure native language. You thought you were good at Spanish just so you could maybe go on mission trips to Mexico. But what if the reason you're good at Spanish is because God has gifted you, called you from your mother's womb without you knowing it, that you have, be, you have been made in his framing of who you are as a linguist who understands language, who loves his word, and he is going to call you to serve a, a people group you have not yet heard of by translating the scriptures of the New Testament into their native tongue. Could that happen? Yes. Will that be easy? for you to learn the irregular verbs of that people group's language? No. Will it be easy for you to take an unwritten language and to create an alphabet? No. Is it worth it? Yes. Great triumph. There is a gospel to advance, my friends. But there's also in this age great tribulation. Now, this is where so many of the debates uh, break out into um, what I'll just say are academic forest fires. And I don't want to get bogged down in those. They are important questions. Um, and, And basically, what they're about is Jesus makes a lot of promises and, and predictions in this chapter, and the debates are about how many of the details of his description of these events here concern events that happen in the first century, events that happen in the distant future, and events that are a little of both. And sorting all that out is beyond our scope this morning. But I'll tell you how I've come to understand this passage, and then, and then you need to search the scriptures yourself. The way I understand this passage, and I think it makes the most sense of all the issues, is that in verses 4 through 14, Jesus is giving us a long-term vision of the kinds of tribulation his church will experience, and necessarily because his church is in the world, that the world is also, there's natural disasters and famines and things like that that aren't going to be confined to the church, right? But he's giving us a long-term vision of the whole age between his first and second comings, or at least between, yeah, between his first and second comings, the kinds of tribulation that there are. And there are all kinds of tribulation. I mean, right, there's political tribulation, nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms. Think about all that political upheaval. There are natural disasters. There are earthquakes and famines. There's persecution, verses 9, Verse 9, there's moral decay, lawlessness, and there's relational decay, lovelessness, and betrayal. I mean, it just sounds like the news to me, doesn't it? And I think what Jesus is saying, and the reason he gives us so much extended teaching here is because he knows, 
He knows, and his disciples don't yet know because he hasn't gone to the cross and been risen from the dead yet. But he knows that the messianic age that he is set to inaugurate with his resurrection is going to be complicated. He knows that it is going to be an age in which there is a, an overlap of great triumph. I mean, he is the Lord of glory. Already all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Everything, all his enemies are being put under his feet. Everything has been put in subjection under his feet by his father. He's been given the name that is above every other name already. It's an age of great triumph, but in that triumph, there is great tribulation. And he knows that's going to be hard to understand and it's going to be hard to live through. So he gives us this extended block of teaching. And then in verses 15 through 26, he's describing not the long-term vision, but the particular part of that long-term vision that is going to be experienced by the generation of the disciples, the generation that he's addressing. And, and he's, he, I think the best way to understand those verses is that he's describing what the, what the Roman invasion, uh, what the Jewish wars are going to be like when the Romans come and when they lay siege to Jerusalem and when they ultimately destroy the temple and when they set up pagan sacrifices in the temple in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. That's why you have the reference to Judea, I think, in verse 17. That's what makes sense to me. But you notice, whether you're looking near-term or whether you're looking long-term, you notice how Jesus describes these things in verse 8. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Like I said before, they're the beginning, so we must expect them to continue. They're birth pains. They're not, so, so they're painful, right? He's being very honest. They're, 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 they're pains, but they're birth pains. They're not death wheezes, so something, they're going to be fruitful. There's something beautiful that is going to be produced. Now, I know that's hard to hear. I know it's hard to hear when we suffer. I know it's hard to hear that tribulation for the church is not going to be just this little period of time right before Jesus' second coming, but is going to describe the entirety of the age between his first and second comings. I know that's hard to hear, but that is what Jesus is teaching, and it is our experience And I want to encourage you to see and understand this and encourage myself as well to see and understand this as an inseparable part of the larger glorious gospel forest of God's posture of mercy toward the world. Our sufferings, if you think about John 3.17 again, our sufferings, our tribulation, our endurance serves God's saving purpose. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the evangelistic missional value of the way that you and I endure our sufferings? You know, if our non-Christian friends see us watching news stories about Ebola and then running for the hills and fretting just like them, they have every right to conclude that we don't understand the gospel. Friends, Ebola is a furry little kitten compared to the velociraptor of indwelling sin that is in your heart and mine. Do you believe that? Ebola is nothing compared to the indwelling sin that that still remains within us. Friends, the way we endure suffering, the way we persevere, the way we continue to love God in our suffering and through our suffering bears witness to the truth of the gospel. It isn't just about us, it's it's about Him. Your, Your response, my response to our trials is telling the world a story about Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to tell the truth about Him in our trials. He's in charge. He's good. He's faithful. He loves us. He is going to fix this whole thing personally. Remember who's describing this tribulation to us. 
is Jesus Christ. Who himself, you know what the cross is? The cross is the greatest of all tribulations. Jesus is describing tribulation to us, but he knows that he, more than his church ever will, will endure the greatest tribulation. To be the sin bearer for his people, to endure the wrath of God against that sin, that is the greatest tribulation. And it's a tribulation he did not earn. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy, 1, or 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake... Listen to this. He's talking about his suffering to Timothy. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul understands the value of his suffering as a Christian to the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the fulfillment of God's merciful purposes toward the world. And we need to get our hearts in alignment with that. If you think about the vision of Psalm 96, which is our call to worship this morning, I wonder if you'd look with me at our call to worship on page... uh, Page five. It's a, the reason I chose this as our call to worship this morning is because this is a psalm that is about God. You can see it. He's coming to judge the earth. But you notice this psalm is full of joy. It's very surprising. I mean, we don't ordinarily associate joy in God over the prospect that he's coming to judge. But you know, the psalmist understands that because that's what the gospel says the gospel associates joy with God's coming to earth to judge you see it's Jesus who fulfills this vision of Psalm 96 God is approaching the world he's approaching the world to judge the world the world needs to be judged because there is so much that is wrong in the world the nations have gods who are idols you see that in the psalm? Look, look at my third thing that I say, the third minister thing. Sorry, I couldn't think of a more technical term for that. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That means that the nations are worshiping things that are God. That, that, that produces so much injustice and oppression. And, and in addition to denying God glory, there is so much that is wrong with the world. God has not wiped his hands of the world. The psalmist is singing because there is so much that is wrong with the world and the prospect that God himself would personally come to set it right is an occasion for joy. Because what's wrong with the world cannot be put right by men. Have we not learned that? If what's wrong with us cannot be put right by us, then friends, certainly on a global historical scale, it's all the more true. And so the psalmist is singing, God is coming. Creation has been subjected to futility. It's been contaminated and it's been subject to all kinds of curses because of man's sin. But God is coming and because God is coming, the trees are going to be freed to sing. And the rivers are going to clap their hands. And people are going to be judged in God's righteousness and faithfulness. We need to sing that God will be glorified. But you know what's interesting? Jesus is the fulfillment of this vision. But in the most remarkable of ways. Because the way Jesus shows us that the way God fulfills the vision of Psalm 96. The way God comes to judge the earth and the peoples and the world in his faithfulness and righteousness is that he comes twice, not once. The first time he comes, the way God is going to set creation free, the way he is going to liberate people, the way he is going to judge the sin of men, the way that he is going to free men from the oppression of sin is by coming the first time to be judged. to be judged on the cross as the substitute of his people, to endure the tribulation that men's sin has earned. You see, before the trees of the forest, friends, can ever be uh, assembled as a choir, 
before they can ever be assembled as a choir, one of those trees is going to have to be cut down and is going to have to be stained with the blood of the judge. Before those trees can sing, one of those trees is going to have to rob the Lord of the forest, as it were, of his last breath. You see, that's what Jesus' ministry is about. In order for all to be put right, for any to be put right, he must first be put wrong. Jesus Christ, Paul says what he says, that he's willing to endure anything for the sake of the elect because he learned that from Jesus. Jesus endured everything for the sake of the elect. We have much reason to sing and to persevere in hope through our suffering. Friends, now... Let's finish by looking at the why of Jesus' second coming. And there's two, two things I want to focus on. First, uh, he comes for his sake, and then he comes for our sake. First, for his sake. If you turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 53, which is on page uh, 614 in your pew Bible. Jesus is going to return. I mean, we've looked at the what and we've looked at the when, but what's the why? Why does he return? Well, first, we see he returns for his own sake. There's a promise that the Father makes to, to the Son in uh, his Son, who's the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. If you look at verse 10, look at this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, now notice this, this is a promise that is being made to the son who's the suffering servant. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's what Jesus did at the cross, that's fulfilled, makes an offering for the guilt of others at the cross. When that happens, notice, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. He's going to be killed as a substitute guilt offering, and yet he's going to be alive. And when he's alive, notice, it doesn't just say he will prolong his days. It says that he shall see his offspring. When he dies, he's going to bear fruit in his death. There's going to be seed. And he's going to see his seed. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now notice, I love verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see and be satisfied. The father is promising his son that he will see and be satisfied with the eternal fruitfulness of his work in the lives of his people. And so then if you move forward back to the New Testament, now go to 2 Thessalonians 1.10. I know, I know the day I don't give you an outline, we're, we're in every book of the Bible. It's just the way it's working today. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. Spent a lot of time this week thinking about this verse. See, now Paul is describing the fulfillment of this promise from Isaiah 53. Look at verse 10. He's speaking of the return of Jesus, and he says, when he comes on that day, the day of his second coming, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, that's a very striking phrase. It's not the way we would probably expect it to be written. We, we might say when he comes to be glorified before his saints or for his saints. But notice what Paul says. He's very deliberate. He says on that day, on the day of Jesus' second coming, he's going to come to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all those who believed, right? This is the fulfillment of the Father's promise to him from Isaiah 53. He, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You know what Paul's describing? When Jesus returns, he is going to be glorified in his saints. He's going to be satisfied because he is going to see on that day in his people, he's going to see them in full possession of everything that he died and rose again to purchase for them. It's not going to be, there isn't going to be any future dimension to it. They will be in full possession of it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be in full possession of what he has purchased, and Jesus will take satisfaction in that. 
He comes back for his sake, but he also comes back for our sake. It's not only true that he will return to enter and enjoy the full fruits and rewards of his labors, but he will return so that we might join him in entering and enjoying the fruits of his labors. Look again at verse 31 and now back to Matthew 24. If you go back and you look at verse 31 there and the image, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is the bridegroom coming for his bride. This is his loving pursuit of us. Friends, the day is coming, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of you who are in Christ, the day is coming when Jesus will return and when he does, he will be glorified in you. Make no mistake about it, that is the assurance that you have in the gospel. Right? The Lord of glory, the righteous judge. If you're in Christ, when the righteous judge, when the Lord of glory appears, He is not going to be disappointed in you. He's going to be glorified in you. You think now, not very much of yourself. You're tempted today to think only about the sin that you struggle with. You find yourself very wanting today and very lacking today. You grieve Uh, what you evaluate as the slowness of your progress and sanctification. You're still struggling years into your Christian life. You're still battling sins that you wrestle with from the very beginning. And you are still, still cast down frequently by those sins. Today, you mourn the extent of your ingratitude to God. You grieve how small your love is for him and the massive scale of your unbelief, your fearfulness, your worry. Well, friends, that may, that may have been your yesterday. It may be your today. It might be every tomorrow until the second coming of Jesus. But on the day he returns, that will not be your story because Jesus will be glorified in you. He is coming back for that purpose. He will not be disappointed. What he has promised, he will fulfill. He who began a good work in you, my brothers and sisters, he will, not we, he will bring it to completion until that day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to be disappointed in you. He's coming back for our sake. And you know what? When he does come back, Not only is he not going to be disappointed in us, but we are not going to be disappointed in him. We will marvel at him. We will be amazed at him. When we see him in all the fullness of his glory, we will be fully satisfied in him. The trees of the forest, they're going to be singing for joy. The rivers are going to be clapping their hands. The hills are going to sing together for joy, right? The field is going to exult and everything in it. The sea is going to roar and everything in it. And above it all, at the top of our lungs, we are going to be singing, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is the Lord. We have waited for his salvation. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And we will be all the more amazed because we will understand now with with hearts and minds fully liberated from sin, we we will begin to understand the magnitude of what he has purchased for us and the cost at which he has purchased it for us. The cross will be so crystal clear to us on that day. And we will have so much to sing about at the top of our lungs Because he will have come, the one we have waited for will have come to judge the world and the peoples and his people in his faithfulness. That will be the day when everything 
sad comes untrue. So let's lean into that future together. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with that hope. We are sorry for how we squander your treasure. We are sorry, so conscious of how we trivialize that future alongside our present trials, how we resent our present trials instead of seeing them as opportunities for your display of your saving mercy and saving power in this world. Forgive us for that. Make us people who are made sturdy by your promise and this hope so that it wouldn't be just locked away in some deep, secret part of us, but we would wear this hope on our sleeves and we would sing before the Lord for he is coming to judge the earth and the peoples in his faithfulness and righteousness. We pray in your name. Amen.